Hey everyone, welcome to Appetite for Distraction. This is a podcast that dissects music and tech. I write a newsletter called Appetite for Distraction. And I'm Martin, I write a newsletter called Music X. Awesome. Today we're joined by Dan Fowler, someone we've wanted to bring on for some time now. He leads product and ops at Hi-Fi Labs, where they've launched interesting products like Music OS, which is an operating system for artists and fans to be their own platforms, something we'll be getting into in this conversation. He's also building Noom Network, which is a decentralized, composable, socially scalable and open source backend for music. Another thing we'll be getting into in this conversation, he writes a fantastic Substack, which kind of documents his higher level thoughts as he builds all of this. I'm a regular reader and I encourage everyone listening to also go check it out. All of this to say that Dan is an OG in this space. He's been here before Web3 became a buzzword. He's one of the first like pioneering members in music crypto back when nobody was talking about, let alone building in music crypto. Dan, thanks so much for coming on. Thank you very much. I think my microphone just turned off there, by the way. Can you hear me okay? (laughs) Yeah, we can hear you. Okay. Yeah, we can hear you. Yeah. Yeah, it's coming through. Cool. Thank you very much for having me on. (laughs) And for the glowing intro there, that's very humbling. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) You've been in the space for a long time now, so maybe you can outline your journey in music and Mm -hmm. some of the initial projects you worked on and what led you to your current projects and your current role. Yeah, absolutely. So my background, I guess, starts before music. I studied aeronautical engineering at university and did what everyone does when they study engineering. I went and worked in the city for a couple of years. So I was uh, I worked in private equity for, for four years across London and, and focused on corporate due diligence, commercial due diligence stuff, which was soul destroying, but was a good way to understand how companies work. And that's been the backbone that kind of everything I've done since has been across is like really thinking about what's important to a company and how it can like best perform versus other people and so i guess i've always had that kind of like pvp mentality when thinking about how to build and then after the company decided to do a contract with the saudi government i was like nope and i left that job and then i was like actually you know what What i really care about is music i used to run a radio station used to put on music festivals i'd always in my mind thought I don't want to do music as a job because then it will make it a job and it won't be fun anymore. Which is also interesting, sorry to interrupt, but that is a big problem, right, in music (laughs) that a lot of people think it's not good to earn money off of it because then the passion goes away. Yeah, and I think... tell my parents that. I still think that's a valid mental state is actually it's important to keep things that are fun separate from work. The classic meme is that if you do something you enjoy, you never do a day of work in your life. And that is true, but then equally, when you make something your job, it becomes everything and that is good and bad. But anyway, I went down the rabbit hole and yeah, I went to go and work in the PRO world, basically. To cut a long story short, I, my speciality was strategy and that's where there was a place to jump into music. I worked at PRS Music for a couple of years doing all manner of things, but focusing on things like what's the future for PRO and blah, blah, blah. So this is in like 2015 and literally a month after I started, that's when people started to get initially excited about blockchain and so like we in the music industry you mean yes generally but like music is interesting right it's always the first one to adapt to stuff or it's the first thing that people think about so particularly people who don't understand the music industry 
as soon as they see a new technology, they're like, oh shit, this can change the music industry. And then, <laughs> and then it takes a lot of people to say, you're going to be disappointed because <laughs> this thing is complicated and it's way more political than it just being a technical thing. I put on a conference, PRS, in I think it's like February 2016, where I got 10 people to talk over four hours about blockchain and music. So yeah, so I've been, <laughs> been thinking about this stuff for quite a while now. So like my job at PRS was very much around trying to make PRS be able to work with startups, which is actually way harder than it sounds. Like the processes and everything make it very difficult for startups to work for PRO. And so I tried to work as this kind of like man on the inside to try and help smooth that over, which worked to a degree, but like one of the startups I was working with, I was just super interested in what they were doing. And so I reached out to them and I went to go work with them. And there was a startup called Jack, J-A. And like we spent a couple of years like going deep on what would a decentralized rights network look like. Back then, the big meme around blockchain was it's going to completely change the supply chains. So now people are thinking very much around the sort of like last mile sort of thing, like the artist, empowering artists. Back then, it was very much the entire supply chain that industries have run on is going to flatten and change and commoditize in ways that it isn't now. So we were really interested around that with regards to intellectual property and taking like the assignment of IP and turning that much more into a peer-to-peer way of doing it, basically. I can go into more detail around that if you're interested. But Please, I would love to maybe a case study or a specific example of how that flattening would work. Yeah, so we so we had a deal in place with all the majors or deals in place with all the majors. Like we had, what was it, about 12 different rights holders on our like proof of concept pilot. So like our entire thing was one of the problems with IP is that there needs to be an authority that decides that something is true. And so we were really trying to play around that edge. So rather than there being an elected third party that says that this statement is true, actually there's a kind of a trust graph that's built around that instead. And you can build weighting around that. The ways you could do that would be, for example, staking against that. And so you could have me, I say, I wrote this song and I'm going to put some stake against that. And then if somebody wants to go against that, then they can do, but then they would have to put stake against that. Now, if you build that system out, which is a legitimate system, I think, then you get into the, what we used to call the rich arsehole problem, where people could just come around and throw money and change truth, essentially. And so that's not a perfect system as well. But this is one of the hardest things is like, how do you build a graph for truth when there is no central authority? And I think this is one of the biggest unsolved problems in blockchain generally, because moving away from simple payment system you have to move into this kind of statement confidence against that statement and acceptance kind of system and yeah it's really tricky so anyway we we spent ages thinking about that and we're trying to use intellectual property as like the medium in which we could do that because there's no global repertoire database it's a really messy system it's really hard to innovate from its current state and so actually a, a novel approach could potentially be something that could change that that was our thinking. So that, did that work? It's one of those things where I think if we kept going, then we'd have been in a really good place in this past year. Because I think it's something that is definitely needed. And like the work that we did was way more advanced than what people are doing now. But we ran out of money, which is what always happens to startups. And yeah. 2017 was a different time. Like Stable coins weren't really a thing. We raised an F as the kind of ICO crash happened and bottomed. So did our runway. and. Yeah, it was difficult. It's, I think I was talking about this the other day in, in water music, and I think it's very similar for artists now, actually, who are selling NFTs. As a startup in 2017, 
like one of your first hires had to be essentially a finance manager, um, somebody who is going to hedge and risk and take on this thing because you, you're raising in a volatile asset. And so you can just turn that to dollars, but the upside potential is way higher if you don't. But then the downside is also crushing as well, which is an interesting challenge because as a startup, you wouldn't normally need to worry about that. But I think that like for startups in 2017 and now artists, it's a major thing to think about is like, actually, you basically have to run as a trader, basically. Yeah, that, that's super interesting. Something you, this is a complete diversion from your, from the backstory and background question, but I think it's worth going down this route, which is like, how much of this problem is like political and how much of it is technical? So I think that there's a nuanced answer to that, I think. The thing that people always say to that is, oh yeah, it's political because people don't want to change because then they will lose their position. And I don't think that's true, actually. I think that like most entities in the music industry think that their data is like, you're not going to get a foothold by going and staying to a record label. I can improve your data because they're like, we've, we've got like... 50 people working on that <laughs> what are you going to do the problems emerge where on the edges so like where you have one entity and another entity the problems are where they're communicating with each other and obviously like things like ddet have made a big difference in that definitely but that's always still can you, can you quickly explain why ddex made a big difference there by standardizing how data is communicated so before ddex was a thing right like it was the wild west like people would just send flat files and just send data to each other in all manner of formats and they were like nah this is how you should send data to each other which has definitely made a big difference but it's still a major issue dan do you know how like how ddex ended up getting adopted so widely maybe some kind of lesson there to learn i I actually don't know but if i was gonna hypothesize i'd say that with the full the grd not happening then ddex became way more important and so that's what i would guess is it is pretty impressive all the majors and everybody is represented all the dsps are they do talk at ddex it's a very slow process but you know actually slow is good when it's like such wide-ranging stuff yeah that makes sense something i also wanted to touch on was this idea of like incentives not being aligned i I remember you putting this in a very amusing way and i won't be able to do justice to how you articulated it but it was something around like black box royalties and just like royalties that were like unaccounted for or whatever and you're just like if someone goes up to a label and says hey we have this technology that'll take that money from your hands and actually give it back to the rightful people you know, labels aren't incentivized to adopt something like that right it, it it doesn't make sense you i mean put it in in a funny way i'm gonna let you explain that yeah so yeah definitely i think this is related to the previous point around like incentives where you know are entities in the music industry intentionally not doing the right thing Dan's doing air quotes, by the way. (laughs) Do the right thing. Genuinely don't think that's true. I think that when it comes... So one of the biggest pieces of advice I do and would give to any startup is to not talk about black box revenue because it's like (laughs) a red rag to a bull to anybody who actually works in in, in that side of the music industry because it's like a catch-all term. There are are many different bits within the quote-unquote black box. Like there's five, six, seven, eight, ten different bits within that and so it's a bit of a catch-all term and then if you want to get really deep into it it's so what are the actual problems there and basically it comes down to metadata it basically comes down to registrations and and particularly on the publishing side the kind of disconnect between release and registration data and if you want to go a level deeper it gets to the issues that publishing has with regards to CZAC and 
the assignment of the ISWC. I've gone way down the deep rabbit hole there and I can pull that. Yeah, those were some terms, yeah. <laughs> can you just pull those out a little bit? Yeah. When a track is released through streaming, it will be the label or a represent or a distributor that does that. They're representing the in the music in, in royalty payments. There's two L, two sides, right? There's the kind of the recording and the publishing side. And they're acting for the recording side essentially. So then publisher has to then essentially chase this horse after it's in the field and try and assign the data to something that's already been released and that's tricky and so like back when we were in cds like you used to have a publishing identifier assigned before a cd could be pressed with streaming we're in a different world now where that doesn't need to be the thing and that's one of the greatest issues in the music industry which is super boring but it is very much an issue and so the question is well, why don't you just assign it so to get an isrc you have to go to an agent who essentially has like a raffle book a raffle ticket book and can give you one that's already been assigned whereas to get an iswc which is the work code rather than the recording code you have to go to a pro who then has to go to czak and then once like all the writers and shares and everything is assigned, they can then get that code. That takes months. And if you were going to wait for an ISWC, the work code to be assigned to a track that's going to be released, you'd be looking at not releasing for six, nine months past the point that you actually want to release a track. So obviously that's not a reasonable thing to do and that's why it hasn't been adopted, but that's one of the major reasons why um, data's really screwed up. I've gone, again, I've gone down a rabbit hole there. It was a good rabbit hole, yeah, and we're yeah. totally off the whole uh, let's start with your background thing. But <laughs> because you work on, still, you still work on solving for this, right? You're very busy trying to figure out how can we fix that. So maybe you can go into that yeah, a little bit now. This has been very central to the issues that I've seen and I've been trying to solve around. Jack was an attempt to completely change how data is assigned. And, and then after Jack, I went back into the industry. So I went to go and work for a company called ICE, ICE Services. It's a joint venture between PRS, Gamer and STEM, the German and the Swedish societies in the UK, which does three things. It's a copyright database. It's got, I think, nine, maybe 12 now. It ingests the data and provides copyright services to them. So it's like a little mini European global repertoire database. It also does licensing. So it does a big multi-territory licensing with DSPs. And then it does processing. So it takes the usage data and then matches that and processes that and tells people how much to pay people. So I went in back in there because one of the biggest issues we had with Jack was access to data. We had to sign deals, etc., to get access to certain subsets of data. But one of my big driving passions is that one of the biggest things holding back the music industry is startups' ability to access data and experiment. So yeah, so I, I went in there to do a lot of policy stuff and try to help people understand that there's no ownership rights in data, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, which was educational. <laughs> it's the political <laughs> way to say it. I definitely, I, hopefully I moved people's understanding on a little bit, but ultimately it's very difficult to change from inside the PRO network just because, again, it's not... And you spent two years at ICE, right? Yeah. It's, it's... So not an insignificant amount of time. No, exactly. I think it's not that anybody doesn't want to change inside the PROs. It's just that it's just really difficult. I think the best way to think about a PRO is it's like a sort of like national bank. There's no advantage in innovating before anybody else. Like you just want to be safe. An example being obviously PRS is a net exporter of music, very high percentage of it. I was going to say revenue, that's the wrong word. Money coming into songwriters comes from other countries. And so every quarter, there was always this thing like, either it been a good or a bad quarter based on exchange rates. 
And so then the obvious thing to say is, why don't we hedge against exchange rates? And they're like, oh, not sure about that. That sounds a bit risky. I, yeah, obviously, <laughs> that's a hilariously ironic thing to say. But that's the kind of mentality is actually, let's just not try to change things too much, which is good, a stable way to be. But it does mean that trying to work with or change anything inside the PRO network, is it you're going to be met by disappointment all the time. So yeah, so I, I did that for a couple of years and didn't get too far. And then I decided to go out and do a bit of a sabbatical. I started writing my blog that you mentioned before and quote unquote Web3 was starting to pick up again. I'm old enough to call it blockchain still, but people calling it Web3 now. That thing started to pick up again. And that was interesting for me because in 2019, we thought this whole thing was dead. I remember I had to call Jack Sploan about a year and a half ago. And it was like a, it was like this beautiful moment when we were like, holy shit, we were right. What we were talking about all back then, we felt like it was, we were wrong, but maybe we were right. And so it's, it was really interesting at that point just to see people get excited about this way of thinking again. And there is a difference now and then. Like, I think back in 2019, because that was the first time that there was like a first wave and then a crash. And at that point, it genuinely could have all gone away. But now I think there's a certain like latent confidence that there is something here. And even if, I mean, it will almost certainly look different next time. These concepts that people are building around, people are probably still going to keep building around them for a while. And with these concepts, just to make sure we and our listeners are all on the same page, what do you mean by them? Are they like the foundational aspects of the blockchain, permissionless, trustless, that sort of thing? Or was it something else you were touching on? So there's a few different layers to that, I think. This is a kind of the fundamental kind of like blockchain way of thinking, which is like self-sovereign control, transparent processes, permissionless building, that kind of thing. And then there's the thing that's become more interesting over the past couple of years, which is artists like redefining their the way that they're earning money. And what we're starting to see a little bit, but probably we'll see more is like alternative models to funding and so yeah i think there's still many shades to this but there's a kind of like center of gravity if that makes sense around this kind of alternative finance financial processes and greater control for individuals yeah i don't know if that makes sense but no that makes a ton of sense and so if we think about that how important is those sort of quote-unquote boring issues around metadata for these alternative models of financing? Um, I think both very and also not at all. I think that, so when, so obviously when we were doing Jack, like we were trying to take the beast head on and change how metadata is working. And I think that's going to be something that's going to take decades to change rather than years. And efforts are probably better served looking at alternatives that can work with, but aren't looking to change that head on. I think that's why this second wave, if we call it that, from 2020 has been really interesting to me because it hasn't needed metadata. It's been an opportunity for artists to experiment and release without needing to play that game, which is really interesting to me because that means that you're not carrying the weight of the current system and you're much freer i think to test out with things so yeah i think for any kind of like mass adoption quote unquote there probably needs to be something that kind of goes across but i whenever i talk to anybody i urge them to not say they're gonna fix metadata because it 
it's it's not going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> so just to be clear, Dan, basically what you're saying is instead of that first wave of blockchain, like people are saying, hey, well, this new technology can fix all of the problems that have plagued the music industry, right? Whereas the second wave almost built like a new game like they said we don't want to play that first game like we don't want to be beholden to gatekeepers for innovation right because just a simple start even some of the most simple startups in music have so many gatekeepers think about licensing right like soundcloud was in in the medium accelerator and even they started out unlicensed because there's no way for a young startup to to go out and get licenses from like the three majors and if you don't have their music you probably struggle with adoption and so on it's almost like we have two parallel music industries like you have the traditional world and that's still going strong but then you have this new world with a complete you know, it's a completely different ecosystem right yeah no absolutely and the fun little anecdote around that so my first week at prs having jumped back into the music industry my boss presented the project he'd done which was to bring soundcloud to the licensing table as a heavy soundcloud user i was like wait what <laughs> what have i done <laughs> i'm working inside the death star sort of thing but yeah i think first wave was supply side disruption by changing the supply chain second wave has been again supply side but a little bit also demand side disruption but it's been individual control working with the entities is a very slow and painful process that kills the runway of most startups and also it just does not work as quickly as crypto moves and so i agree with you i think that what we have right now is essentially two parallel industries that in all my writing i call it the crypto music industry because i think that it's important to define that out and i think it's if you think what was a really good article and i can't can't remember what it's called but that's basically makes the case you should never talk about the music industry you should talk about the music industries because there's many different elements to what we call the music ecosystem if you want to call it that and i think the crypto is another kind of industry within this kind of web of industries now does it remain by itself forever i think that probably not but i think that it's something that if it succeeds then it's something that is just an element alongside things like live things like streaming things like you know it's not a specific exploitation type arguably but it is i think an individual thing that people will specialize in and the smartest labels will separate out from things like streaming as being something that either they really understand or they work with people who really understand it to get the best for their artists do you think there's any hope for startups who are still trying to solve traditional music industry problems with the blockchain or more from we all know that the technology is there right it's more can they jump over those political hurdles and those adoption hurdles that you spoke about so i think i will refer to a tweet from sherry to this one she did this tweet about two years ago and i think it's the most eternal tweet that everybody should refer back to whenever they're trying to build a startup in the music industry and i'm not going to quote it verbatim because i can't remember exactly how she phrased it but essentially there are like two three stages of trying to build a startup in the music industry there's okay i'm doing something completely like that's going to change the world and then it's like oh shit i need to work with the record labels okay i'm going to provide a service to the record labels okay the best option i have now is to exit to the record labels and get acquired and I think that's also true for, for what you've described. I think that if you're trying to build anything that is not a new demand driver, a new way of streaming, and I don't think that disrupting streaming is really a clever thing to try and do because let's be honest, streaming is 
a very good product as it is right now. Yeah. Then you're having to work around stuff that your customers are few and very powerful. And actually your best route to exit is going to be through acquisition. Mm. So I know that's a very depressing thought for anybody who's trying to build in that area of the industry, but it's something that's really important to understand, I think. Yeah, no, it's informed by experience. Yeah, makes sense. Yeah. Martin, you were going to say something. <laughs> so a lot of the things that are happening at Hi-Fi Labs, a lot of the things you're trying to do with Noom relate back to a lot of the things that we've just been talking about. How do you think about scale when you think about the things that you do at Hi-Fi Labs? Mm. Yeah, no, I think back in like March, I was like writing articles and actually no, it was like January this last year. And I started talking to Jack again, Jack's blown. And he'd recently started working at Hi-Fi and he was like, I think that we're in a similar mindset. Let's I'm just going to interrupt you. Sorry. This is the second time we talk about Jack. So we need to contextualize him a little bit. So maybe can you just t t talk about Jack and like he, how he was there in, in the first phase with Ujo? So Jack is also a, an early in person. There's about 10 of us that were like talking about this stuff at the beginning and are still around about with there's been many fallen comrades along the way but yeah jack was i actually can't remember what his title was or what he was doing at ujo but he was doing sort of product stuff generally i think at ujo which was one of the very first music and blockchain companies they did i think arguably the first music nft with imogen heap they weren't called nfts then um they yeah they were doing a lot of stuff like so one of the sort of kickoffs for like music and blockchain was a conference that happened at Berkeley. It got together about 30 people, people like George Howard and Imogen and people like that to talk about this stuff. And Jack was there. So he's been thinking about stuff for a long time. And yeah, so he was working with Hi-Fi as like head of crypto to think about what they were doing and how that could be enabled by what we're now calling Web3. And yeah, so we started talking about a year ago and he was like, I've got this idea for a product. And then I got closer into the company and really love their kind of like mentality their vision their ethos so now i'm leading product and operations and generally trying to <laughs> make things make sense so uh, i guess a bit of context about hi-fi so the ceo our, our ceo joe was head of music at patreon and obviously got great experience with that but then equally saw the negative sides of patreon whereby even though it kind of empowers artists. It also like totally platform locks them around Patreon. And so that's his driving mission is move the platform around the artist rather than making artists platform dependent. And so obviously there's a natural crossover with the kind of Web3 mentality. So that's the starting point, I guess. So Jack and I started thinking about Music OS and then we started building it out from like March, April time with the kind of fairly loose, high level idea that uh, we want to allow artists to be their own platform and create tooling that will enable that. And at that point, there was like a decentralized data element to that as well. But quite quickly, and I made the argument that actually that data network needs to be something that's open source and like not gatekept at all. And if we're building out a product, we need to separate them because there's two different ways of building. And if you try to combine them together, it's never going to work or it's going to be an ineffective way of doing that. So that's how Noom was born, was to separate out the data element of the platform and try to make that as open as possible. And, and maybe go a little bit into how you're trying to make that open, because I think that's super interesting. Yeah, so Noom started out, so I'm bringing in another new name now, Tim 
Daub was another early in guy. We had a chat back last February, I think, Denver, because he was there and he was like, I'll never do music again. I was like, let me buy you a pint and let's have a chat about that. And so he led the kind of architecting of what Noom could look like. But essentially, Noom is a crawler. You can write a strategy, what we call strategies, that basically tells the crawler what to look for, and then it pulls them from the blockchain and catalogs it. And so we're using the kind of like open data properties of blockchains to build a database essentially of everything that's happened and will happen and that, that's the entire point of Noom is that it's meant to be like completely unopinionated completely open for anybody to write a strategy and it's just cataloging everything that's happening and making it usable for people who are wanting to build on top of it so yeah all of the code is put out through open source licenses everything is available anybody can run it and you like dream with it is that in the not too distant future me and hi-fi can basically say go fly anybody can use this take it on whatever like the argument i put across when we started th- talking about it was if we inject funding and effort at the beginning then this will prove itself to be useful and then others will pick it up and we can as well and it can become its own thing and that's still the kind of vision with Noom is that for it to genuinely be successful it can't be just controlled by me or anybody else it needs to be a completely open thing and bef- before we bring this sorry Josh before we bring this back to music I just want to highlight something about Noom the way that there is no governance quote unquote can you go into that there is I guess so so Tim left the project about two months ago. We had the disagreement about this exact point. I think it's so hard like, trying to build an open source project. Like, I'm learning so much about this as we go. My vision was to bring in some governance, i.e. some kind of decision-making around where funding is spent. His mentality was that, no, there should be zero governance. Like It should be chaotic hacker mentality where anybody can work on whatever they want, et cetera, et cetera, which I totally respect that opinion as well with my hi-fi hat on. I was like, we need this thing to do certain things. And so but <clears throat> the state of Noom now is where there is some governance in that like HiFi is the sole funder and we're like, directing where it goes. And I will, or we will evaluate as we go. I think if somebody came in and was like, we love this project, we want to put some funding into it as well, and we want it to do something else, then you have two parties funding and then you probably need to start thinking about how like the weighting of votes go and stuff. But I think that's I think that's the important thing with governance is you should only build what you need when you need it, rather than trying to like hyper engineer like a perfect structure about how decisions are made, if that makes any sense. Oh it does. It does. That's amazing. Yeah, just one thing I just wanted to give like an illustration to cement the point that you just made dan so basically what you're saying is this might be relevant to the founders who are listening right the problem or the defining problem or challenge that founders had previously was that if they're trying to build something in music there were all of these custodians of data and then you had to appease or acquiesce or you just align with them to get your product up and running and this was a challenge right because then you have to appease certain stakeholders and play by their rules whereas with noom Essentially, anyone can come in and they have access to this array of data and they can just build on top of that. Am I summarizing that correctly? Yeah, no, exactly. I think it, it's like when we're talking about backgrounds, it's quite transparent why I'm so interested in Numa, right? It's like I spent years trying to open up a database from the inside yeah. and now there's an opportunity to create a new database 
that is open by default. And so that's, that is the driving passion of Noom is actually music industry is hamstrung by availability of data and opportunity to innovate because of that. Web3, quote unquote, has this growing expansive database that is open and available. That's a huge advantage. And arguably, if you take that further, that's probably one of the biggest bull cases, I think, with regards to crypto music as a subset is that actually there is this available database to experiment with and not ask permission. Obviously, in the tail end of last year, we saw one of the impacts of that, which was artists saying, hey, I haven't given you permission to use my data. And there was a whole thing there, again, nuanced position both sides were right and also wrong but but that, that that's it right it's like actually this stuff is available and then that gives a great opportunity to innovate quickly and so that that's why i'm really interested in that and i guess like pulling it back to music os that on that side of the fence we're trying to provide the tools for artists to understand that and to build up their careers with that basically i think if i was going to describe music os as simply as possible it's specifically trying to allow artists to build and maintain as many high value connections with their fans as possible. I think that's probably a fair summary of the mission statement of Music OS. I think to extend that slightly, if we take the kind of new stuff to one side, I think for me, the most interesting thing about music and crypto right now is the opportunity to disrupt record labels. I think that trying to aim for demand side disruption is a fallacy. As I said, I think streaming is a perfect product for the mass market, but supply side disruption is more interesting, I think. And if you take the service set that a record label gives to an artist in terms of like funding, marketing is partly solved within Web3. I think that Web2 distributors playing alongside that, there's some opportunity there. I think on the marketing side, that's what we're really thinking about with Music OS is like empowering fans to be part of that kind of like journey. And then on the financing side, there's obviously a lot of stuff going on at the moment around trying to democratize the sort of funding of artists. So, yeah. Interesting. Yeah. So when I think about Music OS, then I have to think about Pixar. And the reason I think about Pixar is because there's this ideal state story about Pixar where you have all the creatives on the one side and then you have all the tech people on the other side. And the creatives always turn to the tech people and want, hey, I want this thing. Can you develop it for me? I I want a fish that can swim through water and you can see the water ripple. I don't know. You can think of anything. And then on the other side, you had the tech people who were just developing stuff. And then they would say, hey, creative people, we've developed this stuff. And then they were like, oh, okay, that's interesting. Now I can do this and I'm going to make this new film or short story or whatever. And is that sort of the kind of ideal state you're looking at for music OS as well? Yeah, no, exactly. I think I think it's that's more of a hi-fi thing. Like a yeah. big part of hi-fi's resource goes towards working with artists. So like we've got 12 artists that we have like a management deal with who most of them don't work with crypto at the moment, but that in itself is interesting because at the point that they start to be interested in crypto, then that's a pretty strong signal for various things. We also have Henry Chatfield, who runs like a cohort program, which is all about trying to onboard artists into Web3 and help them understand the, like the UX challenge that there is. I think those signals that you get, we get from artists and we're trying to do it ourselves whilst also talking across the field with various management teams, et cetera, absolutely needs to drive what we're and again that, that's the difference from this time and last time like last time there just weren't that many artists interested in blockchain 
now there are and that's a really important thing when you're trying to build products is having interested potential users i was going to say customers but that that, that's a i think users is a more fair term like actually interested users which is exciting it's very exciting so yeah no absolutely i think artist desire is a huge product driver but then equally to your fish and ripples point oh no it was the other one like developers like developing stuff and then providing that to artists and seeing what the emerging use cases are that's also an important thing as well so like good product design is about getting that balance right it's about getting feedback and being live to that, but also like having a strong hypothesis and building stuff out and seeing how that is adopted. Yeah. And then I'm missing the fan here because the fan is super important there as well. How did, where does where did they come in? I think we spent a long time towards the end of last year really trying to dive down into who are we building for? And I think, are you building for the fan or are you building for the artist? And within the fan, actually the concept of a fan in Web3 is more nuanced again, right? It's like you have fans, you have collectors, you have investors, you have X, Y, Z. It's more complex than it is in like a basic sort of streaming setup, or maybe it isn't. Maybe those personas do also exist in the traditional music industry. It's just like crypto makes everything more bare and exposed and like you can see people's like actions more clearly but yeah so we talk about that a lot i think fundamentally i think the artist is what we're trying to build for but then equally one of the problems in crypto and music right now is that there's probably an oversupply of artists trying to experiment now ironically which is what we didn't have at all before but now there's like loads of artists that want to do nfts one of the problems is that there's a few thousand collectors in total or fans in total. At that point, actually growing the kind of market from a fan perspective, maybe that's the right place to build. But the problem with that is that then you're trying to compete on the demand side, which is what I was saying that you shouldn't do. This is turning into a bit of a therapy session now. I'm just kind of talking about everything that's in my head constantly. But, but this is the challenge, I think, is that I want to build a better experience for fans in Web3 music you're probably going to build SoundCloud. <laughs> um, yeah. And what's the fucking point? <laughs> because SoundCloud <laughs> already exists and, and then web artists can release the SoundCloud. So I think, yeah, th- this is probably front and center of mind of anybody who's built a product in, in Web3 Music now is this exact problem. But Dan, what about like productive assets? You wrote this fantastic piece on yeah. fixed supply versus productive assets. Maybe you can unpack that essay, but do you feel like the productive asset model is a disruption on the demand side because it does get more people in from the collector slash investor front into crypto. I think it can be interpreted in a lot of different ways and I need to spend more time thinking about it. But I think that my thinking when writing that article was around the supply side disruption still, which is that okay. than a artist needing to sell their rights to get a deal with a record label actually there's a potential to build thick and directed cooperatives with other and other people their fans or whoever and this is i think where DAOs are actually interesting where you can build very specific and quick cooperatives to do specific things and an example of this would be i'm an artist i have a new song out i want to release a new song i can work with a pr company or actually i can pull together a group of fans and the money I would be spending on the PR, I can put towards their efforts and the outcome of that can be something that is valuable for everybody who's involved in that. And that's like part of 
the thinking. I think if you want to go down the full productive assets way, then, you know, the thinking instantly goes towards like royalty share, which kind of gets you back to the record label yeah. model. <laughs> so I think that in my head, this isn't fully defined, but I think it's a really interesting direction to be thinking. So we've spoken about a lot of things already. And there's a really important concept in your thinking that you've been putting out in the last sort of two years, maybe year and a half, which concerns post royalties, right? And so this goes back to a lot of the things that we've been talking about concerning what you tried with the unavailability to experiment with the data that is available. Mm -hmm. And and how crypto is in its recent wave allowed artists to experiment outside of the traditional music system. And you came up with this concept of post royalties. So maybe you can explain how that sort of fits into everything else. Yeah, I think as you say, like this is all linked and it's been an organic like journey. I went into ICE with two clear goals. One is that to make data more available, it's really hard to get data to work with. And the other one is it's really hard to get rights. Actually getting a license is a really difficult process and a long and there's a lot of effort and lawyer costs involved in it. And so one of the successes I got at ICE was I envisaged and we built a product which is a self-service licensing tool. So if you are a DSP within a certain subset of like exploitations, you can go to the site, put in your expected usage, and then then it will generate a license for you. You can pay with Stripe and then you have a license, which which is which doesn't sound big, but that's a huge leap forward compared to what we have currently. So I was very proud of that. I am still proud of that. But one of the problems was that I realized like a year after we'd done it, that no royalties had been paid out for me yet. And I was on calls where it was, we were discussing about it. And then the classic thing happened where they're like, okay, let's pay out on analogy. And I was like, I understand why. I completely understand the rationale, and I guess, to explain what analogy means. Most licenses that are done will be paid out on market share, essentially, or analogy where analogy is they will do a sample. They will go out go in and get out like an oil check on like usage that's happening and and then use that to inform like how the payment, how the royalties are paid out. And the reason why they do this is because actually the expense that will be incurred to do it quote unquote properly would be so high that you probably end up not actually paying any royalties out. So that, that's kind of like the rationale internally. And I completely understand that rationale. But it's very frustrating when you put in a lot of effort to try to make it easier for people to get licenses, then you realize that actually all that money is still going to Sony Universal, even though there was, there was no Sony Universal music listened to on that site. So I guess for me, that was probably the final straw in my own head around like how complicated how just a state of like the financial process that underpins the majority of the music industry and just how like stable it is how hard it is to change it and so that kind of really pushed me to a point where i was like actually if i'm a new artist who's entering the music industry now would i want to play that game and i think the answer to that is no i think that actually the answer is if you are somebody who's going to be releasing music in 2023, like you are instantly competing with Adele, Paul McCartney, etc. The vast majority of money is going to be going to them. Like the, even if you get great success, the longevity of that is like so much shorter than it was before. You're not selling products, you're selling 
a position within the kind of like global leaderboard and you're against every music that's ever existed ever. It's just a really difficult thing to do. And fundamentally, like the core thesis in like this, let's imagine a world that doesn't have royalties, is that the revenue that is going into the music industry, from we're talking about streaming here, is growing linearly and probably flattening. Well, it is flattening. And the number of creators entering that market is growing way quicker than that it's only going to get harder to fight for that share of this pie that is diminishing and so actually i think that the stage is being set every year more and more for artists to say ah, you know what fuck it release my music for free i'm gonna find the value elsewhere and that's why i think crypto is potentially an interesting thing for that because obviously that's quite central to a lot of the thinking in what people are building is building alternative ways for artists to be able to ties their career and why do you call this post royalties it's thinking about a world after royalties it's thinking about an artist who says this is how the current world works and I want to do something different. Yeah. That doesn't actually match the way that you've been talking throughout this podcast so far, which is try and do something next to each other, right? And whereas with post royalties, you seem to indicate, just leave it behind and go and do this totally different thing. Yeah, and that's the interesting thing. I probably don't actually fully believe that a total post royalties world makes sense, but I think it's an important case to make, which is what that article was intended for. I think that in reality, a approach that takes both mentalities in is probably the way to go you are still playing the royalties game but you're also majorly financing your career or building revenue against your career through alternative means i guess if you take that to the most extreme thing then you actually are in the post-royalty thing because you're saying i'm just going to release my music for free and monetize elsewhere but yeah i think in reality that's probably not going to happen yeah and then you'll have so do you think that in this sort of reality state, the people will say, okay, I have this bit of music that I'm going to release for free and then I'm going to monetize differently. And then I have this EP that I've made that I'm going to push out onto like DSPs and I'm going to earn revenues on through the streaming economy. Or but do you think that will be a game that can be played? Yes, but <laughs> it's always a but. I think that the more complicated that gets, the greater reliance then or the greater strain is put on the creaking system if somebody is releasing some music for free some things are put out on creative commons licensing some things are x and y and z you are trusting the system to be able to reflect those decisions that you're trying to make and the system isn't designed for that i think as we saw with in rainbows there will be artists who try to do things but they will probably be more the examples rather than the sort of like which is why we're still talking about radioheads in rainbows in exactly. 2007 yeah. now right in 2023 yeah exactly it's like yeah. actually it really is the ex exception rather than the rule and then of course pros also come into play because you do a deal with a pro and then it's not super clear that you can or cannot tell them reporting my music here, but I'm skipping this one because I made it for a gaming company or... Yeah, it's interesting because in some ways, PROs are further ahead on this because of like the whole buyout structure. You know, if you're a songwriter and you want to work with Netflix, traditionally, Netflix will require you 
to essentially sell them the copyrights of the thing that you're writing for them because then they have more flexibility around like global distribution we'd like to end with a music recommendation yeah Um, oh god music recommendation you've put me on the spot now we like to do I mean, I, all I can recommend is what I listened to just before we had this call, which I think is as good as yes. anything, which was Tool, <laughs> Tool 10,000 Days. I think it's one of my favorite ever albums. So nice. let's go with that. Nice. I'm a awesome. big Tool fan myself. Yeah. Dan, this was this was pretty amazing. Great conversation. I, I think we could probably do part two of this for <laughs> sure. Thank you so much for coming on. No, thank you. It's always fun to chat about this stuff and yeah no we'd love to do a part two again at some point hopefully that was interesting i know i enjoyed it all right awesome awesome cheers guys thank you so much thank you cheers. Bye.